The Saint of the Wilderness, also known as Sheffy, by Jess Carr, Chapter 10, Part 1. On August 18th, the wailing voice of a fit child broke the stillness of a sweltering and breezeless afternoon. We can honor you, Aunt Elizabeth, and my own mother, if you'll agree to Margaret Elizabeth for the name, Robert said when the infant was only hours old. His wife made no protest and sank into a deep sleep. The room still smelled of the lingering odor of human sweat, for Elizabeth had been in labor since early morning. You let Elizabeth's sisters wait on her for a long spell, the midwife admonished as she left. She's not going to be hopping around so quick after this one. Robert said that if Elizabeth wanted him to, he would ride to Austinville and fetch the nearest doctor. Presently, Sarah came from out of the kitchen and announced that their evening meal was ready. As he passed Elizabeth's bed, he saw large beads of sweat on her forehead and in the hollows of her cheeks. He stooped to dry her face and felt her hot, still panting breath in his face. He kissed her dry forehead and stood over her until Sarah called him a second time. Elizabeth sat with them at the table the next week, but her f uh, flesh showed a deathly yellow-white pallor and blue-black circles underscored her listless eyes. She could hardly hold the infant to her breast, and the child always seemed hungry and restless. The following day, Robert brought the doctor from Astonville. His diagnosis was rendered quickly. Your wife has lost too much blood. She will need to rest as much as possible and eat well. Her breasts will not produce the amount of milk the baby needs. She can nurse at night and in the early mornings, perhaps. Get a wet nurse and use her throughout the day. Robert promptly found a slave woman at the crossroads uh, leading to Astonville whose mammoth breasts would by no means be emptied by her own newborn child. Arrangements were made with the woman's owner, who in a neighborly gesture gave his permission and a mule for the woman to travel upon. Elizabeth's slow recovery again prevented extensive travel throughout the rest of August and September. In the interim, uh, Robert read his Bible avidly, searched again the pages of his discipline for anything he might have missed and read thrice over the abandoned paper to which he now subscribed. The latter would be of benefit in the classroom when October came. He could now tell the children more about Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and a new man they had not heard of, one Abraham Lincoln the most recent issue of the paper had carried a story about Lincoln's effort uh, while serving in Congress to propose a bill for the gradual and compensated emancipation of slaves in the District of Columbia. Such was to take place with the approval of the free white citizens. According to the paper, however, the bill displeased ab abolitionists as well as slaveholders and never was seriously considered. School hours were over and Robert stood in his garden digging the October crop of turnips when a galloping horse and rider pulled to a halt at the back door of the cabin. Instinctively he dropped his hoe for across the 
years, he could seem to sense when the unusual or urgent was at hand, and a horse in a lather never left any doubt. He recognized the rider's face, but could not recall his name. Yes, what is it? Robert said as the man dismounted. Cass Wilkerson sent me to fetch you. There's been a terrible accident. Well, what is it, man? Robert urged as the messenger paused, wetting his lips with his tongue. It's Bertha Kincanen. She's been burned up. What do you mean, burned up? That crazy woman of Stenslaw uh, Lewinsky's burned the house down in the middle of the night, and Bertha uh, laying fast asleep. Nobody was able to get her out. None of the neighbors seen the fire or smelled the smoke till the roof was fallen in. Do they have the Lewinsky woman in custody? She's in custody, all right, in custody in a pine box. The neighbors said that when they got to the fire last night, that lunatic had climbed plumb to the top of that red oak tree between the house and the barn. You remember it? Robert said he did and asked the man to continue. Well, she was sitting on the top limb. You could see her plumb ghost-like by the light of the flames, leaning over farther and farther, trying to catch stuff flying through the air and going up the chimney. Robert shuddered. The poor woman was sick. Well, she was in good spirits last night, climbing a 60-foot tree and screaming at the top of her lungs. She kept yelling, Here comes my baby's call. Here it comes. She would be a screaming and lean out of the tree limb and try to catch a piece of trash floating in the heat and smoke. She leaned over too far and came tumbling out of that tree like a, sh a shot squirrel. Robert then asked what Cass Wilkerson uh, would have him do. Mr. Wilkerson said the girl, Wanda, I believe her name was, wants you to conduct her mother's funeral. Robert promised to be there on time the next day. He asked Sarah to stay with Elizabeth and the children, and of Leah he requested that she take her, her dulcimer to his school and entertain the pupils in his absence. When he reached the Lewinsky cabin, Wanda flew into his outstretched arms, inconsolable in her grief. Oh, Mr. Sheffy, she cried, if I hadn't told Mama you and Mrs. Kincaid had helped me, she wouldn't have done this terrible thing. It's all my fault. No, no, child. It wouldn't have made much made any difference, and she'd have heard about it sooner or later anyway. But who'd have thought, even imagined, after all these years? His words died. It went over and over again in her mind. Things like uh, that did sometimes. Mama would go wild thinking about things like that and she probably believed in her poor sick soul that Mrs. Kincanen had my call. I'm sure that tells a story, Robert said, aware for, for the first time of the magnitude of the cure he and Bertha Kincanen had affected. Come and look at Mama. We've got her fixed up so pretty. I did it myself. He looked upon the 
singed face of the woman in the open pine box and was repulsed at the green flies circling about her mouth. Yet in spite of all the offensive things that he saw, the look of peace that had at last come to the face of Helga Lewinsky made all other things uh, negligible. He stayed with the family. Then one of the boys had married and his wife was there. As they all awaited the funeral hour, no neighbors were present and no friends if they had any. He stood at Wanda's side as she prepared a humble meal of fried mush and boiled tur turnips. She was a grown woman now, a kind of wild raw beauty that no man had discovered, he was thinking, until she told him otherwise. I'm getting married at Thanksgiving. My man runs a delivery wagon between here and Withville. He thinks an awful lot of me. Lord bless you. You've been a good girl, and I hope some of the things I've taught you will help as you pass through this life. Most everything I know started when I began school under you. She told him then that only her youngest brother remained at home and that she and her new husband would live with her father until they had the means to build their own cabin. By two o'clock, Cass Wilkerson, his wife, and several of the men uh, Stenshaw Lewinsky worked with made their way up the mountain. Some had brought their wives, and there were also girls that Wanda had gone to school with. He was glad to see them, and since they had held the birth of Canaan in high esteem, he suggested that after the funeral was over, they all go to the ashen remains of Bertha's house and hold a memorial service. Stanislaw Lewinsky, even in his grief, wanted to be with them. Not even a wall of Bertha's house remained. A part of the chimney up to about the second floor stood as a grotesque monument of what once had been. Robert rode around the red oak from which the Lewinsky woman had fallen. In the charred branches of the tree, just above the level of his eyes, he outstretched, his outstretched hand grasped a partially blackened piece of the white counterpane Bertha Kincanen had first reluctantly, then lovingly kept stretched upon his bed. Perhaps Helga Lewinsky did see a call floating upward through the smoke after all. Perhaps the blackened cloth he now held in his hands was the thing she reached for. He looked toward the top of the tree, folded the small square of cloth, and put it in his pocket. Elizabeth had gained some of her strength back by Thanksgiving, and Robert took her for a short ride in the family buggy to the house in which he was born. The trip was not altogether a pleasure trip, for Daniel had written asking Robert to collect his rent. Daniel now wandered from place to place, and it was not unusual for Robert to get a letter from any of a half dozen countries in western Virginia or any number of post office northward up the valley of Virginia. Wherever he happened to be, Daniel would be happy playing his fiddle, telling stories, talking politics, or generally drinking of the warmth of human fellowship. The relationship he shared 
with all his brothers was a precious thing to him, even if it depended upon correspondence alone to keep it alive. Lawrence wrote the most often and indicated that Alabama might become his permanent address. Hugh wrote more rarely than the others, but he always had something important to say, reporting in his last letter the part he had played in the convention of 1850-51 to that passed the manhood suffrage law, opening the way for non-law landowners to be able to vote. Robert now came back to his birthplace without the same feeling of confused nostalgia. Time and again he had tried to picture what his mother had looked like, what her mannerisms and habits had been, the smallest details that would let him see the woman from whose womb he had sprung. As a small child, he could recall being scolded by his Uncle James and his other uncles for asking them over and over again to tell him of his mother when she was a young girl. Now he wanted to uh, call out to the log walls that had witnessed the shadow of his mother's movements and tell her that her womb had borne fruit of which she could be proud. He did not think that Elizabeth had been particularly cheered by their outing. As they rode home, she sat quietly on the buggy seat, her black nun's bonnet pulled low against the chill of November. Does this remind you of our courting days? he asked cheerfully. She smiled a little then and straightened. You never courted me in a buggy. You always rode horseback. It was true, although they had used her father's buggy a time or two. Do you still feel bad, hun? Like every ounce of sap has left me, she tried to say in an undejected tone of voice. He patted her knee affectionately. You'll be well by Christmas. You must be. I want you and the children, even the baby, to come to our Christmas program at the school. I don't think I'll ever be well, Robert. I can't even feed my own baby without the milk of a slave. That's no disgrace. Plenty of women do that. You'd still be my sweetheart if you went as dry as an old Jersey cow. She smiled, but her face took on a suspicious look. You sure you're not just buttering me up before you light out again in the spring? No. If I was doing that, I'd wait until about the last of February or the first of March. She looked at him intently then. Please don't leave me this spring. It's not that I don't want you to do what you're doing, but I've been seeing bad signs about myself. You'll get all right, but we'll wait and see, he promised. Elizabeth was not well by Christmas, nor by spring either. In anticipation of spending most of the summer at home, Robert put out a corn crop, and from the lonely hours spent uh, there, a grand idea was born. If Elizabeth's health continued to plague him, her throughout the summer into the winter, and he could not leave her in clear conscience when the following spring came, there was an alternate solution. He would get a preaching 
uh, license and try to find a small church to serve somewhere within riding distance of home. His crop did well, and by the time school had opened and the first big frost hit, the corn was in the shock and the pumpkins uh, for hog feed and home use in the barn. Elizabeth began to feel like helping him in the husking of the corn, and on many days when he returned from school, he would hitch up the one horse sled and take her out put for the day to the corn crib, sorting out first the mound of children that covered uh, his load. By late fall, Robert insisted that Elizabeth stop this work. Uh, there was a good reason to avoid over-strenuous activity. Robert learned that she was pregnant with their sixth child. John Robert was born July 6, 1853, just two days past the anniversary of his father's death or his father's birth. Uh, when the child was a month old, Elizabeth could not stand up for more than an hour. Her breasts had little milk, and she depended entirely upon still another wet nurse that Robert had been able to find. Don't go from me any more this summer, Robert, she pleaded, and he promised he wouldn't. But he did find himself breaking the promise. First there was a summons from Big Ed Edmund, who was now the property of a plantation owner at Glade Spring, a growing village almost halfway between Abingdon and Marion. When Robert got there, Big Edmund lay dying in the slave quarters from massive ruptures on both sides of the abdomen. He gave a hug to the suffering man, who burst into tears at this display of kindness and the nostalgia of reunion. Your owner told me you just about killed yourself trying to lift a wagon, Robert said. Big Edmund was whimpering and trying to talk at the same time, and Robert could hardly understand him. The slave started again. They said I couldn't do it. Lift that wagon of corn. I'd done it, but it hurt me, Mr. Robert. Had the wagon turned over on somebody? No, sir, Mr. Robert. We was putting a new wheel on it. The old one broke off, and then other f fellers said we'd have to put a prize under it, and I told I could lift it. You shouldn't have tried to do this so much, and you're not as young as you once were, Robert added, not really knowing how old the Negro was. It don't help me none to know it now. I'm a dying for sure. That doctor, he wouldn't tell me nothing, just let me lay here. Robert was satisfied that the slave owner had done all he could. Neither did he doubt the doctor's prediction uh, that slow internal bleeding and infection would kill Big Edmund in two or three days at most. The pain came and went in cycles. When Robert decided to bind the sick man's belly with a long cloth, to relieve the pressure and hopefully the pain, Big Edmund said, The doctor done that before. I took it off so as I could breathe a mite better. Throughout the night, Robert was torn by the groans of pain. By morning, he himself felt a bone-deep fatigue. The slave had on 
held on through the day, weaving in and out of consciousness. The slave owner's wife brought bread and soup, bit, but Big Edmund refused to open his mouth, though he watched Robert eat with a glassy-eyed interest. You must eat, Big Edmund, Robert said again. Let me help you eat. It don't make no matter to a dying man. Don't make no matter at all. Robert tried to, with con conversation, to comfort the man. They talked of the days uh, they had both known at Colonel James White's house in Abingdon, and the work and fun and laughter that had been a part of it all. Robert had talked to the slave about his soul's salvation the previous day, when Big Edmund had spoken to convincingly about his preparedness. Robert had not forced the pursuit of the subject then. Now, Mr. Robert, I've, I'm in need to ask you about something, Big Edmund said between grimaces. Yes, you never knowed about me when Colonel White done bought me. Uncle James never told me anything about your purchase. I was a, a whoop master. What the other slaves done call a flogger man or whoop master. I worked for a county man down in Alabama. I don't understand. That county man got paid for whooping runaway slaves when they was caught. Did he make you help him? Not exactly, Big Edmund said and stopped, his face contorted again with pain. Robert waited. No, he never made me do it, but he gave me some pay if I would. And you whipped and flogged your own black brothers? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yes, Lord, Big Edmund cried out in pain and remorse that seemed to strike him simultaneously. Robert moved his chair closer to the bed and wiped the tear-swollen eyes of a dying man. God will forgive you for that, and when you get to glory, every man you flogged will forgive you. No, they won't do that. Do it. I whooped some of them until their eyes done rolled back in their heads. God can and will forgive that. The black man shook his head, but Robert insisted. Yes, he will. All of us, in some way, have beaten the helpless and betrayed our brothers. Oh, Lordy, I don't feel it, Big Edmund cried out in, ang in his anguish. Uh, the greatest Christian who ever lived participated in the stoning to death of one of Christ's own servants, and he whipped and gouged and imprisoned hundreds of others. He cursed the name of Christ, but he saw a blinding light, and he was changed a changed man after that. He himself felt the stripes of the whip on his back in the damp loneliness of the prison cell. He went on with the story of Paul until Big Edmund seemed to be seeing a profound vision. Oh, Lordy, it must be so, Big Edmund cried. It must be so. Have you ever been baptized? I don't know. I don't remember my mammy, but I know I ain't been since I've as a man, Robert asked the slave's wishes and, in conformity with them, brought a cup of water from the watering trough in uh, the barnyard and sprinkled the dying man's head. They talked in quiet tones after that 
And finally, there was an unmistakable peace in the fading voice of Big Edmund. By dark, Big Edmund's body started to stink, and he raved fitfully throughout the night. At dawn, the giant of a man made one attempted leap from his pole bed of corn husks and fell back wide-eyed and dead. Robert returned home after Big Edmund was buried and found there a message to pay a, cell, a call on one Martin Ingo. Uh, he did so, and after returning from the visit, he burst into his cabin as excited as a schoolchild at Christmas. Mr. Ingo and some of his neighbors are thinking about building a new church at the foot of Henley Mountain. He's asked me if I'd consider pastoring the church if they built it. It would be close it would be close home for you, but looks like to me there's churches enough around here, Elizabeth said. Some of the mountain families want a church nearby, and I'm not real sure, but I think there is a serious division underway among them. With a feeling of his exhortation, Robert made his way the next week to the presiding elder of the Withrill district to obtain his license to preach. He was questioned at length, and some of the questions and the tone of the questioner gave him cause to wonder. In each case, however, he answered as fully and patiently as possible. Finally, he was told to come back in a month. He returned to the home of the presiding elder when the time was up, only to confront an evasive churchman who obviously had the backing of the examining committee. Mr. Chevy, I'm afraid your application for a license to preach is not in order. We must in all cases determine the fitness of an applicant for licensing. As you know, one of your duties would include the performance of legal marriage ceremonies. The suitability of a candidate is not so much in question when he is a graduate of a divinity school or comes with the recommendation and endorsement of a church conference. In your case, you are an unaffiliated itinerant. Uh, that doesn't mean I can't serve my blessed Lord with love and faithfulness and minister to his people. No, not if you're qualified, the elder said. Many itinerants are licensed and perform an honorable service to the state, the church, and the people. There are also those men who never bother to get a license, but of these, everyone must, of course, be suspicious. Do you have reason to believe I can't honorably serve? Robert asked, catching the in inference. Uh, the elder paused for a long while. Finally, he cleared his throat and looked down at the floor. Frankly, Mr. Sheffy, we asked you to wait a month to allow us time to do some asking around, and more specifically to discover if some of the things we have already heard were true. And what did you find out? We learned that you are a man of some ability and piety, maybe too much piety. There are those who think you cannot properly see the real world for walking around in a heavenly one of your own invention. I make no apology for seeing the fruits and evidences of a blessed earth and acknowledging a merciful and 
benevolent God? What about some of the other things that have come up or come to our attention? What of your throwing cold water into the face of a pupil? What of wrapping your arms around a tree as though it were a sleepy child? Do you really believe tearing off tree limbs is like tearing the limbs from a person? I have done these things and believe in what I have taught. Then, too, Mr. Sheffy, all of us pray, but do you not consider it strange that you are known to pray for three and four hours at a time and in most unusual places? In the rain, too, sometimes I understand you frighten the children with your prayers. I'm sure you know that. They say you do not pray, but that you talk to God. Good sir, whom do you talk to when you pray? Be that as it may, men should not act in peculiar ways. It unnerves others. But it is said that God's people are a peculiar people, Robert said, when they get queer enough to hug the sugar maple trees and pray out loud for the honeybees. Why, we can't help taking notice of that. The elder said gently. Yes, I do those things, Robert said, and I have shouted among the bee gums also. Can you grasp what a wonderful thing it is that the little bees gather the sweetness of God's beautiful flowers and work like tiny soldiers to make the sweet honeycomb? Why, it is a most wondrous thing. The elder appeared unmoved by Robert's simple defense. I'm sorry, Mr. Sheffy. Your application has been fully reviewed, and I cannot give you a license to preach. I have been preaching already, Robert uttered in disappointment. With all due respect, I am not sure that your wanderings and exhortations over this state and into the border countries uh, of others, or counties of others, could be considered preaching. They certainly aren't done with the sanction of the state, or any religious body that I know about. I don't need the sanction of anyone to proclaim God's loving kindness, Robert said. No, no one can stop you from being an unlicensed itinerant, and I did not mean to imply that you have done no good. Your kindness to the lowly and the high-bred alike has reached my ears, and I understand that your testimonies are quite eloquent. Mr. Sheffy, if you got the recommendation of the Holston Conference on Methodism, or the bishop, perhaps, I need no recommendation to speak what is in my heart, Robert interrupted. He thanked the elder and walked from the room. He returned from Withville in a state of such dejection that he avoided even his wife until she discovered him seated unmoving in the corner of corner by the fireplace. Why, Robert, I thought you were still in Withville. Why did you return, or when did you return? I've been home for about an hour. What is the matter? They refuse to issue me a license to preach. They think I am too peculiar to be trusted with one. Elizabeth listened while he related the rest of her, his story, but she did not seem fully to share his disappointment. I hope you'll stay, still stay home in the summer any summers anyway. 
Robert, I'm not feeling so perky yet. The baby is past three months old and I'm still not doing right. He visited with Martin Ingo the following Sunday and told him of the failure to get a preaching license. Don't worry, not about it. We'll all go over there and sign a petition when the time comes. Actually, some of our folks have cooled off a little on the new church idea, so I don't know what'll happen, Martin said. Robert rode down the mountain so low in spirits that he did not even wish to go home. The children would miss him, for they would be looking forward to their Sunday afternoon ride in the saddle behind him, and they would not take kindly to his breathing or breaking the tradition. At the bottom of the mountain, he got a piece of chalk from his saddlebag and drew a landscape scene upon a flat rock. The picture depicted a small mountain church of log and wooden shingles with a horse tied to a nearby tree and a man kneeling on a sheepskin prayer mat near the front door. When the sketch was finished it, to his liking, he studied it for a few m moments, smiled, and got to his feet. He placed the sheepskin on which he had been kneeling back on top of the saddle, climbed on, and headed for home. In plenty of time to give horseback rides before dark, he thought. But when he reached the, his home, Elizabeth was complaining of an abnormal blood issue, and he sat by her side until uh, his oldest boy could fetch a neighbor. The temporary care arranged for, he rode uh, to Astonville for the doctor. The doctor stayed the night, and between frequent trips to Elizabeth's side, Robert slept in the rocking chair beside the fire. He fixed breakfast for the physician before the children were up. Your wife has not made a normal recovery from her last delivery, the doctor said between gulps of coffee. I would suggest you keep her in bed until the bleeding stops fully. After that, she should do no lifting nor any strenuous work. Sarah and Leah took turns staying with their sister until the 1st of December. Robert thought all the normal again and took his wife and family to his school Christmas program uh, where Elizabeth sang the Christmas carols with all the uh, gusto uh, demonstrated by the other participants. The next day, however, she was compelled to return to her bed. I may as well move in, Sarah said the next morning, trying to add a note of cheer to the depressed household. Either that or you do the teaching and I'll stay home, Robert said. I'd like that, she said and hurried the two oldest boys who now numbered among their father's pupils. Elizabeth's con constant need of care continued as January passed and February came, contributing even more height uh, to the unmelting snow of January. By the second week in February, half of the class, including the two Sheffy boys, was out of school with mumps. Parents came frequently to take ill children uh, home from school, but the appearance of Melville Cut uh, Cut Cutron, 
a neighbor and father of two of Robert's students who had been out of school two or three days already with the mumps seemed unusual. Robert, you'd better ride home and hurry, Catron admonished. I'll look after the children and send the oldest boy there for the doctor. It's your wife. I might as well tell you that. Robert rushed home, and when he got there, Sarah sat by her sister's bed, weeping, as though a dam had broken. A flood tide of blood saturated the feather tick of Elizabeth's bed, and no color at all was visible in her face. About their mother's bed, the older children, eyes terror-stricken, looked up at their father for an explanation. I did all I could, but I couldn't stop the blood, Sarah sobbed. It just kept coming and coming till I knew there wasn't any left. You did the best you could, I know that, Robert comforted her. I had to send James Wesley and him with the mumps after a neighbor. Poor little feller. I hope I didn't do him permanent damage in his condition. They've gone for the doctor, but it won't be any use now. I don't believe there's a drop of blood left in her. With this pronouncement and its ringing finality invading his very soul, Robert's own tears joined the chorus of those uh, young and older who knew that a beloved mother, wife, and sister was no more. Next time, Chapter 10, Part 2.